welcome to your January-February 2010 edition of Voices of Experience, where our theme this year is Imagine. I'm your host, Jarrett Bro. All that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind one day at a time. Open your mind. It's a new year, time to fulfill your new resolutions and goals for 2010. On Voices of Experience this month, we'll share ideas that you can use immediately. Our guests include some fresh new faces and some of the great sages of our industry. Get ready to open your mind, NSA, on Voices of Experience. Did you ever imagine the day when the youngest speakers in NSA we're teaching the veterans new ways to reach out to potential customers. Well, that day is here, especially as we enter the age of social media. This month on our backstage segment, I'm talking with Josh Sunquist. With one leg and two crutches, Josh made a big impression at last summer's convention as he spoke about overcoming adversity. But backstage, he revealed stories of amazing success as he connects with his audiences long after he's left the stage. So as you can probably imagine, I get asked a lot of really uh, ridiculous questions. I was talking to this girl not too long ago about my artificial leg, uh, like how it works and what it is made out of and such. And she looks down at it and she's like, is the foot fake too? <laughs> True story. Yeah. It's strange for me as an amputee uh, to come to NSA every year because as you probably noticed there are a lot of other amputees here. I was thinking recently we should actually form like an amputee peg. <laughs> yeah, it would be called the peg leg, yes. <laughs> we'll be getting together for dinner tonight at IHOP and whatnot. <laughs> Sorry I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> when I was nine years old, I had a rare form of bone cancer, and I spent about a year on chemotherapy. I lost my leg, and as a result of that, I started doing fundraising speeches for the hospital. And so I, I started speaking at a young age, and as I was kind of becoming a speaker and becoming more interested in, in speaking when I was in high school, I also started ski racing, became a ski racer, started racing full-time, trained for about six years, and in 2006, I went to the Paralympics in Torino, Italy. And sort of after that, I guess I finished school and decided I wanted to become a full-time speaker. And here we are. You start speaking at 10. Yeah. Not many people become a professional speaker at 20. Yeah. Tell me how the career is going and how fast it's moving. I, you know, I gave a lot of speeches from the age of 10 to 20, 22-ish, but it was kind of here and there. It was like, it was how I paid for my skiing. It was how I paid for my grad school. But it was maybe like 10, 15 a year or whatever. And then, so then when I finished grad school about a year ago, that was the first time I was like, all right, I'm going to do this full time. You know, I set up my office, hired staff, et cetera. But uh, I was at a really unique position because I already sort of had a reputation in some marketplaces. But more importantly, I already had these platform skills that I could really like get on and just hit the ground running. So uh, things have been going really well for me, I guess, is, is the short answer. How do people find you to hire you? How much of your work is bureau-oriented versus how much 
comes from your own marketing, and, and do you have staff that assist you? Yeah. At this point, I pretty much everything, all my business is word of mouth. Uh, whether that is you know somebody in the audience is, who is on a hiring committee hears me, or whether it's someone in the audience tells someone who's their friend or whatever, it's basically all word of mouth. So I'm in a really good position that uh, it's pretty much everything comes. People call us, people email us. Most of it comes through my website, and I have an assistant who does the marketing and sales. So she kind of follows up on all our leads and qualifies people and books the speeches from there. Facebook used to just be something that you could get when you were in college. So you were actually in college when all of this came out, and you kind of got such a a good running start at using Facebook and YouTube, because Facebook wasn't even available uh, to those of us who were not college students at the time. So tell me how you've leveraged uh, those social media tools. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny with Facebook. It, yeah, it really happened organically for me because I was on Facebook and uh, just from college, like you said, and I never really, you know, thought of it as a marketing tool until um, about 18 months ago. I gave a speech at a high school while I was I was still in grad school, and um, I got home from from school, you know, I guess I went back to my computer like maybe the next day, and I had all these friend requests, just tons and tons of friend requests of people I'd never heard of. I was like, well, this is weird. And I had this message and someone's like, hey, check out this fan club we made for you. And uh, and, and they had sent me this message, this girl who had formed a fan club at this high school for me on Facebook. And within three hours, there were 400 members in this group. Three hours, 400 members on the day I gave my speech. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is crazy. And and how forward were you in using YouTube before uh, before those of us who are older speakers realized, oh, we can put our videos on there? Uh, when did you start putting videos on YouTube? Uh, I started putting on YouTube, yeah, way before I wanted to become a speaker, probably when I was a sophomore in college. In fact, yeah, I mean, I had um, a video that I made sort of late high school that I put up, I think, sophomore year of college. And by the time I graduated college, it already had like a half million views. Uh, or some, yeah, something like that, quarter million, something outrageous. That wasn't even me speaking. It was just some. It was just like jokes and funny stuff. And then I started kind of putting up uh, just clips of me speaking. And, and what actually happens? What's interesting is that because I speak a lot still in youth, um, they're very tech savvy. And I, I noticed that there was all these videos going up of me on YouTube that I hadn't made, uh, which is a copyright violation. But that's sort of a, a thing that I think in, in modern society or in the modern marketplace, people need to just kind of like get over stuff like that. It's just like, yo, it's gonna happen. People are going to put up stuff that's like, that's it's your material, but they're going to put it up. And so what I decided was, all right, people are going to put up videos of me anyway. Like, I want it to be my best stuff. I don't want, like, their cell phone things. It's all scratchy looking. The sound's terrible. So uh, about a year ago, I started investing in, like, bringing production crews to some of my speeches and getting, like, really high-quality videos that I can put up on YouTube. So that way, if you go on YouTube and you search for me, I want the number one thing to be something that I decide was my best stuff, not, like, that a kid filmed, like, this 15-second clip that's, like, this part of my speech that's not even good. At, at 24, the youth market has been your target audience. Uh, you're transitioning now in, into adulthood. How much are you transitioning to adult audience and corporate audience and association audience uh, versus what you've traditionally done in the youth market? Yeah, right now it's about half and half. And yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting transition. You know, um, I think uh, an advantage of having come from the youth market is that when you speak to youth, it's like really important to be very interesting all the time. And uh, moving to adults now, I see I have this kind of luxury that 
adults are going to pay attention. And so it's like, well, I can like add a lot more sort of content, uh, I can like say like <laughs> serious, interesting things, and uh, you're going to keep listening to them. I have a youth speaker friend who describes it really well. That he feels like with in the youth market, you have to uh, trick students into listening to your serious points. That we're like motivational ninjas. That we like surprise you. Like, <laughs> oh, you thought I was telling a joke, but actually, it was a serious point. You had no idea. So it's a funny, a funny bridge that I'm on right now. So in this generational progression, you now have a mainstream publisher. Right? Yeah, yeah, I have a book coming out from Viking Penguin. Uh, you know, a book that'll be like you know in bookstores, and uh, it's gonna be. You know, I'm really curious to see. Um, you know, will that book be able to sort of drive demand for my speaking? Um, that's kind of what I hope. But I also hope that it's something that you know, after I give a speech, that audiences members can go and and read that and really sort of um, continue the experience of my message and brand. In the spirit of progression that you're going through, have you started reaching out to coaches, hiring people to to take what you're already doing well and raise it to the next level? Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I like to, I think, learn from maybe unconventional ways. I uh, have a guy who's a, a screenwriting consultant that I work with a lot on kind of my books and my speeches uh, to sort of figure out, like, the best way to structure stories and, like, how sort of mythic stories have always been structured and how can I, like, tell stories in my speeches in a way that resonates with people, like, on a, on a sort of the natural way that I think as humans we're wired to hear stories. I study a lot of comedians. I actually did... Uh, uh, about three months of like stand-up comedy earlier this year. I did a bunch of stand-up comedy competitions and like read a bunch of books about stand-up. So I like to kind of try and learn from uh, learn from ways and from sources that are uh, unconventional. I think. What have you taken away from the comedy experience? Uh, you know, it was really interesting. I mean, for one thing, I think as speakers, we're spoiled by the great audiences we have. But I think I learned, uh, number one, a sense of timing and also gained confidence in my ability to speak in front of a really small group. Because a lot of times that's the way it is in a comedy club. It's like five people in the corner of a restaurant. In your career, have there been some monumental mistakes that you've learned from? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, many, many. I mean, I think... You know, the biggest thing, the biggest paradigm shift for me is when I when I started getting serious about speaking in high school, my attitude and mentality of a speaker as a speaker was to go up on stage and kind of say, check it out. I've got life figured out and you should be just like me because my life is so awesome and so figured out. I got my goals and my values and I'm just like Tony Robbins. And, you know, it was, and I got to this point in college where I just sort of like hit a wall, not, not just professionally, but personally. I realized, man, I don't have things figured out at all. And now that's what I hope is the attitude I can convey is like, I don't have things figured out at all. Here's some stuff that's happened to me. Here's some stuff I've observed out life, and let's kind of talk through this together. And this this life thing, these difficulties that we face together, these goals that we all have. Let's sort of have this meaningful experience, uh, both as speaker and audience, because we're on the same level. I asked you about biggest mistakes. Do you yeah. have any any major flashpoints that you thought were just wow? Either I did something really brilliant, or this was a great accident. <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's your job, I guess, right? Um, mistakes that were really brilliant. I um, I guess, you know, one thing I, I started doing that I think has helped me a lot and that I would encourage other people to do, but I don't think it's the thing that everyone would want to do, is I um, I survey audiences a lot. And I know that some people are like, oh, don't survey audiences. You're going to get that one negative feedback, and it's going to crush your hopes and dreams or whatever. But I, I survey audiences in a different way. That's kind of what I got my master's in is, like, research. So I, what I survey is not, like, 
did you like my speech on a scale of one to six? Well, that's not useful. Uh, what I do is I say, like, I'll, you know, like, for example, here are the stories Josh told in his speech. Rate each one on a scale of one to six. And what that allows me to do is, relative to the under stories, is figure out which, spe- which stories are working. And then I'll also, like, find out demographic info. So I know, oh, like, women really like this story, men really like this story. But what's, what's I guess, sort of the flashpoint of that is there's been a number of things that, like, I just were really small parts of my speech that I didn't think were that good. And then I look at them and they score off the charts. And I'm like, oh, well, this part really connects with people I would have never known. That is the wildest, smartest idea I've heard of. <laughs> that is incredible. So so how is that changing the final presentation now? How how much do you go in and, and tweak and shift after you get the kind of feedback? A lot. You know, and, and I, yeah, like I said, I realize like it's a thing that some people would think is just the worst idea ever. And, you know, you have to find your own style. But to me, you know, it's, and it's not that I want to pander to my audiences. It's that I want to be effective in what I do. And it's not like I go on this survey, I'm like, please write my speech for me. It's like, I want to know what's working, what's not working. And so, yeah, I think that, I think what I'll do is, you know, when I kind of write new sections of speeches, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make sure I get audience feedback. Um, you know, I guess it's not, to me, it's not legit if I don't have at least 100 responses, but I've, I've had surveys where I've had as much as like 500 responses. And so that's some pretty like statistically significant data that you can pull out of that. And then it's really important, like I said, for the youth versus adult thing, because I'll, I'll find, you know, on the audience, like I want to know like kind of what age group you're in and what gender you are. And because the differences between adults and youth are enormous in terms of which stories they like, in terms of which points they like, in terms of uh, what they say they want more of in my speeches. For example, the basic uh, you know thing that you would probably expect is that in a question like, would you rather have Josh share more uh, you know, funny stories about his life or more um, life, you know, insights and, and content, what we'd call basically the entertainment versus content question that keynoters always face. And um, and it's just, I mean, it's just, it's clear as day, like youth 75% of the time will say that they want more funny stories and adults 75% of the time will say they want more content. And it's, and it's really, it doesn't really matter how much funny stories or content I have. It's just like, they're always going to say they want more of that. And so that's really important when you're structuring a story to know like what is it that your audience would want to get out of this speech Um, and and I think that that's been a tremendous tool for me in trying to learn how can I best connect with adults um, coming from this youth background where I'm used to needing so much entertainment to sort of keep people like um, super hyped and interested in it. Many of us in NSA have been taught over the years, of course, gather business cards at the end of a presentation, get people to sign up for an e-zine or a newsletter or something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't a lot of young people walking around with business cards, so that's yeah. not working well for you. How do you get this survey out to people? Do you get their email list, or is, how do you get in touch with them? Is it Facebook? What's your method? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll use different things, but I'd say the most effective method that I've had is I will have a uh, a really memorable URL. Because people, you know, speakers are always like, oh, go to myname.com. Nobody remembers your name. Nobody knows how to spell your name. So I have a lot of domain names that are either like a joke from my speech or a main point from my speech. So, for example, um, I have a story about cow tipping um, where the cow (laughs) turns out to be a bull. True story. Um, And so I own the domain name bulltipping.com. And so at the end of my speech, I'll be like, go to my website bulltipping.com. And you can get some, uh, you know, some some videos or some MP3s, uh, you know, free eBooks, all the kind of normal things you'd offer. Um, and so then, what happens is people go to that, and that points people to, you know, to one of my surveys, and it'll say, hey, you know, I'd really like your help on this survey. I care a lot about your feedback. If you take two minutes to do the survey, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you all these free downloads or whatever. And so, um, so then, yeah, that's how it happens. People, yeah, you know, the key is to have a really memorable URL and a, a sort of a reward for people who visit it. 
What is your conversion when you look at the size of the audience for the keynote versus how many will go to that URL and actually take the survey to get the freebie? That's a great question. Um, as you might expect, it is uh, way higher for youth. Um, for uh, for youth, it's, it's incredibly high, actually. I will... Uh, this is probably going to sound unbelievable, but I will usually have uh, 50% of the youth audience go to the site. Uh, if I have a survey or just an email address collector, 25% of them will sign up. So literally, if I speak to 1,000 of them, 500 will go, 250 of them will sign up, uh, which is which is pretty outrageous. Adults, I, I can't give you real firm numbers. It's smaller. Um, I, th- I think it's around 5 to 10% usually, but enough that you can still get um, pretty good results on your surveys. Have you been able to convert that type of following and fan club into future engagements or selling them products? Sure, yeah, that's how I build my list. You know, and, yeah, I don't know how other people build their list, but that's how I'm building mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and what's your conversion rate once you once you build this massive fan club? Uh, you mean in terms of like selling product? Yeah, I don't push a lot of product online. I, don't, I like I like to uh, I like to I like to imagine my. Um, fan base or, or contact list, not so much as a source of income, but as a source of non-monetary value. For example, I do other, like other surveys, um, like let's say that I have a, a new product idea I'm thinking of, like a new, let's say, uh, a new, yeah, my, my book cover, let's say. I've got a book cover. I've got two book covers I'm thinking of. Uh, I want to know like what people think about it. So I send that out to my list and I say, hey guys, I really need your help. I need your feedback on this book cover, and I'll get, um, yeah, I mean, I did that like a month ago. I had like 24 hours. I had like 1,200 responses. So like that's like pretty firm, like this is the cover we like. So that to me is incredibly valuable, and it's more important to me that people are willing to open that email and give me that value than they're willing to like pay me a dollar or, you know, a dollar's worth of margin on some book I'm going to sell them. Uh, you know, to me right now at this point, my business, my income is, is from my speeches and the value I get from my list is, is non-monetary, but still incredibly valuable. This month on A Category of One, Joe, you sat down with Lou Heckler. Tell me what you think makes Lou Heckler A Category of One. No, it's interesting. Uh, The thing about Lou is it's Lou the person that makes Lou the speaker great. I was at uh, one of my very first NSA conventions. I sat down to meet the pros, and the pro was Lou Heckler. I didn't know who he was. We spent an an hour with him, and then shortly after that, a few months later, somebody said, who's your favorite speaker? And I said, a guy named Lou Heckler. And they said, what does he speak on? I said, I don't know. I've never heard him speak. But Lou Heckler is my favorite speaker because of who he was. And then since having heard him speak a number of times, he remains one of my absolute favorite speakers. It's interesting at conventions because people just gather around Lou. It's, it's like going to the altar and getting this wisdom. Lou is one of the people, I think, one of the most respected. I don't want to get too gushy or Lou's just going to squirm right out of his skin. But Lou's one of the most respected and truly most beloved members of this association. It's because of his intention, I think, which is all good. Well, let's find out what makes Lou Heckler a category of one. Typically now I say... I am what most people call a motivational speaker, and I do humorous keynotes to kick off and close conventions. And then when they follow up and say, well, what do you talk about? Mm -hmm. What's it about? What do you say then? Well, actually, I got a tip one time from uh, one of our NSA colleagues who spends a lot of time teaching people how to 
not work a room, but just how to be comfortable in a room of people that you haven't known before. And she said, you should say something like this if it were my case. Well, I'm a, what most people call a motivational uh-huh. speaker. I uh, kick off and close conventions uh, all over the United States. Just recently, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a group from Arvest Bank. It was their annual sales rally. In that way, you've given them a bunch of different doors that they can come in and visit with you, yeah. even if it's just, oh, my uncle lives in Tulsa. Yeah. Or, but, um, uh, well, they've got a context. They, right. they've, yeah, they, you're, that's, you're giving them a way in. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. As, as you were talking about what you do, I, I told somebody yesterday that uh, said, well, I'm going to be interviewing some people, and one is Lou Heckler. And she said, the, the great thing about Lou is that he is the same person on stage as he is off stage. And that's something that we hear people talk about mm, a lot. That's a nice comment. And I don't, yeah, it's a fabulous comment. And not that many people do it. What? Okay. <laughs> What's your secret? <laughs> How do, because yeah. I think so many speakers flip a switch and they go into speaker mode. And yeah. you stay pretty much the same. And it's incredibly effective. Oh, thanks. What are your thoughts about that? I, you know, part of it, uh, part of this answer may surprise you. Part of it is because I grew up in Pittsburgh and went to a blue-collar high school. Honest to goodness. Uh, Pittsburgh is not the East. It's the Midwest. And part of it is just that Midwestern kindness that people have, uh, desire to be with other people. I went to a blue-collar high school. There were only about... In my class, maybe 20 to 25 percent who are lucky enough to go to college. So I feel like I can really relate well to everybody at every level. And I don't, I think one of the things I learned quite well as in growing up was that I'm no better than, I'm no worse than anybody yeah. else. And so I just, I love to meet people where they are and mm-hmm. be with them at their level. I don't expect to be catered to or lauded or anything like that. I just feel like you haven't had the time to spend the time I've spent learning these things that I'm going to talk to you about. So just think of me as the conduit for that material. It's not, I didn't think it up. I thought about how to package it. But I didn't think it up. That's what I say sometimes. I say, folks, I'm a reporter. That's I, yeah. I'm trained as a journalist. I have a, exactly. I have a, You've got uh, that background. Yeah, I have a bachelor's degree in uh, journalism. So for me, that's what I am. And let me ask you this. You, I, I truly do think, I agree with my friend yesterday, I think you're one of the most n- natural people on stage uh, in this business. Now, is there, um, is there an art, is, is there a lot of work that goes into being natural? And what I'm getting at is mm-hmm. the structure mm-hmm. of the presentation, because you're a master of that. Yeah, well, How important you. is is structure? To me, structure is everything. Yeah. It's everything. It, it, uh, if I can make a little pun here, I, I sometimes say to the people I coach, uh, structure doesn't freeze you, F-R-E-E-Z-E. It frees you, F-R-E-E-S. When you have structure, number one, the audience has an, an easy context to follow. Number two, you have an easy context to follow. And then it becomes, for me then, it's simply a conversation. Mm-hmm. I really think of what I'm doing as a dialogue rather than a monologue. They may not be speaking out loud. Exactly. But it's a dialogue where they are, I'm, I'm reading a lot of nonverbals. I'm getting a lot of, you know, sometimes some some just out of nowhere comments. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's it's to be treated as a conversation. Years and years ago, 
when a gentleman a lot of our listeners won't remember named Arthur Godfrey was on the radio and the TV and so on. There used to be advertisements for his show, and you like this given the, the, the title of your big-selling book, Joe. He, the advertisement for Arthur Godfrey's show said his real secret is he broadcasts to an audience of one. Yeah. And that's what I try to do when I'm up in front of the room. I just simply say, I'm talking to one person. There may be 600 one persons, <laughs> yeah. or there may be 6,000 one persons, but I, I treat it as if it's a single individual. So you honestly don't see it as, I'm going to give a speech. No. It's not speechy. No, it's a report on some stuff that I have learned, and now I, it's kind of like a news story given verbally. I remember, and, and I've mentioned this, for years at NSA, in the in the early 90s, there was an NSA workshop in my hometown, Nashville, Tennessee, and you and Patricia Fripp. Yeah, you remember that on openings and closings. On openings and closings. Yeah, yeah. I've I've always been pretty good at openings. After 25 years, I'm still struggling with my closings. I kind of yeah. just meander off into nothing and wander <laughs> off the stage. But um, that was the first time it really struck me how vitally important structure is. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to this idea that you mentioned, because I think it's really important that, that structure frees you. Yeah. Because a lot of speakers pride themselves on, oh, but I, I don't even know what I'm going to say uh-huh, when uh-huh. I get up there. Yeah. And yet the structure lets you, you can wander off, but you know what to come back to. Yeah, let me talk out of both sides of my mouth here for a minute and sure. say that when, uh, when you have structure, the audience doesn't say, I don't believe they say, wow. He sure has structure. <laughs> right. But they just say, gee, this made sense. I, it was easy to follow. Yeah. When you don't have structure, they do identify it. So it's when it's there, it's not noticed per se. When it isn't there, it's totally noticed. And they're going, they might say, well, he was very entertaining or she was very intriguing. But I, I mean, I never had any idea where they were going with this. I think a speech needs to have a, a momentum. And with that in mind, I, I sort of do the uh, Stephen Covey seven habits thing. I start with the end in mind. I always yeah. start with what do I want them to do or think or feel when I'm finished? Yeah. And that backs up then everything else that goes before it. Well, speaking of backing up, let's back up and take a, a bigger picture view at, at your career. You, how many years have you been doing this? About 29 years. Okay. A little longer than I have. Um, looking back over that, are there any... Um, points in your career that stand out as turning points, yes. decisions that you may yeah. shift in there? What, what yeah. are one or some of uh, them? The biggest one was this. Um, through uh, an old colleague that I had been in the military with uh, back in the early 70s, uh, in uh, 1980, I uh, had the privilege of going on the adjunct faculty at the University of Michigan's Executive Education Center. This was not student students. These were business people coming in for four-day, five-day, three-day, two-week seminars. And I started speaking for them, and I started doing it every month. And I'd fly from Florida up to Ann Arbor and do this. And after I had done it for about 12 years, I was feeling burned out. The travel, doing it the same every time, there's a great deal of pressure, frankly, in being in one of these big university programs. And it happened not because of me, but because of the other great colleagues I was working with, that we were the highest-rated program in this Uh, whole catalog. And so I was feeling a lot of pressure. And I just finally said to my wife, I, I just, I I think I'm getting burned out. I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm I'm just getting tired. I don't, it just, I I think I'm done. And she said, well, let me ask you a couple of questions because I've been seeing that, you know, how spouses Mm -hmm, can see this on your face. She said, are you using as much humor 
and as much of your genuine personality when you speak up there as you do when you give a speech. And I muttered something about, well, I know this is the University of Michigan, you know, ho, 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 I have to wear a tie. And she literally grabbed me by my shirt and looked in my face and said, Lou, you are a performer. You have always been a performer. This is a woman I've known since I was three, by the way. (laughs) You've always been a performer. Just perform. Perform your seminar. And it completely changed my attitude. I stayed with them seven more years for a total of 19. I had the highest ratings I ever had in that seven-year period. And I, here's what it goes back to. It's, it's not the person who gets up in the morning and says, and it's going to sound like Mr. the Zen master here, and I don't mean it to, but it's not the person who gets up in the morning and says, what do I need to do today, or what's my job today, or who do I need to call today? Mm-hmm. It's, you really have to get up and say, who am I? And if you can let that loose on the world, you'll always have business. One of my favorite thoughts about speaking was, oh, and I'm, I'm blank on her name. She was a, she still writes about politics. She was a speechwriter for Reagan. Oh, I, I will credit her at a later date. All right. But she said, uh, she's talking about giving speeches, and she was talking to a, a, an audience of people here in the U.S. She said, if you're going to give a speech, she said, don't be slick. These are Americans. They've seen slick. Be you. They haven't seen that. Right. Be you. Now, speaking of that, and, and let me kind of start to bring it home with this. You, in addition to speaking, you love teaching. Yes. And working with speakers I about do. speaking. I do. It's a real privilege. And, yeah. And you really started doing that uh, in a big way. What, uh, uh, 15 years ago. Oh, 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, in a small way, 15 years ago. Yeah. In, a, in a big way, about five years uh, ago. That's what I was thinking. About five yeah. years ago, yeah. you really took it off. Yeah. Well, uh, what's the joy you get from that? Working with other speakers. They're all my babies. (laughs) That's it. It's just they're all my babies. When they come and they have needs and somehow through some process, which I would describe if I knew what it was, uh, we come up with ideas that seem great to them and they go out and do it. And then I get they send me letters that they got on their performance they're my babies it's just like any of you who are lucky enough to be parents you know what it's like you'd much rather have your child complimented than you would be complimented yourself so it it just feels like at this stage of my life and my career it's such an honor to be able to multiply the things that have been kindly given to me over all the years and pass those out to other people and and then to see people go out and do it and succeed and they call up with such enthusiasm and it's just so delightful you uh, a minute ago said start your speech with the end in mind what's the end you have in mind when somebody shows up for a coaching session? It's to help them find their true, genuine self and to help them realize that every single thing they need to be successful, they already have. Yeah. And they just simply have to tap into it and not try to be this person or that person or this person, just simply to be themselves. Because all we want to know is, what do you know and how do you know it? Because we're totally fascinated by you, the speaker. Not that you just have the courage to be up there, but how you came to that place. And here, a lot of times, the first day they come in, they usually come in late in the afternoon, and we try to just make it all social that evening. We sit down, and we'll have a glass of wine, and we'll have dinner, and so uh-huh. on. We'll be yakking around in our great room. And they'll tell these amazing stories. Okay, so the next day we start in, and we start working on the material, and I'll say, now... What about that thing you told me last night? Where do you put that in? You know what they say. Oh, that's not in oh, I never, material. I never put that in. I'm saying, are you kidding? That's the <laughs> yeah. essence of your... And that's when they start to cry or they start to go, oh, my gosh, I can't yeah. believe I... And so just helping them uncover that 
You know, Stephen King said one time, the, the, the novelist, said to him, writing is a process of it's like, it's like walking down the beach and kicking up the sand, and once in a while you find a pretty shell. Yeah. And that's kind of what the coaching process is about. It's yeah. looking for those looking shells. For the shells. Let me close with this. Lou, I'll make you squirm a little bit. You have been uh, a role model and an inspiration to so many of us in NSA. I would be really interested to know who your role models have been. When I was growing up, the very first television that we had was 1950, and I was immediately fascinated. And the number one person I was fascinated by was Steve Allen. He passed away a number of years ago. To me, he was the ultimate entertainer because he was intelligent. He wrote more than 300 songs. He wrote many, many books. And he had this really subtle, gentle humor. The same with Jack Benny, the longtime radio and television personality. The same with Bob Newhart. I just, I watched the way they could get laughs out of, they were the, the pre-Seinfeld type of laughs, but yeah. very much like Seinfeld. Yeah. I'm sure he would answer some of the same way. Uh, it, I, I love the absurdity, the quirkiness, the whimsical nature of everyday life. I'm going to interrupt you here because do you know who I'm thinking of as you say this? It's one of our members, and I know a good friend of yours that you introduced in New Orleans, Tim Gard. Oh, yeah. That same yeah. kind of funny as yeah. all get out and quirky and just sweet. Yes. You know, there's just such a sweetness about it. I just, you know, that I think, again, going back to the way I was brought up, I mean, that's that's how it was in our family. I have two yeah. older sisters. We are still wonderful friends with each other. We just, we loved laughing. We loved just the, the, the everyday absurdity type of humor. And so when I, I guess even at an early age, long before, I always wanted to be in and on television, which I had the privilege of doing for 15 years. But in the early age, before it was even like a career goal, I just I would literally watch somebody like a Steve Allen or a Jack Benny for more than just what was going on. I would be sitting there saying, "How are they doing that? Yeah. What did he just do there? What made that funny? What made that? What made me amused?" Because today I'm not a comedian type speaker. I don't get the every whatever it is, thirty five seconds or whatever right. it is they expect to get the laugh. But I, I just assume get that. That head shake, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he said that, or that little thing where they nudge the guy yeah. next to them. To me, the, you know, that's, that they were the people who inspired me. And one other person, this is a name that nobody listening will ever uh, know. It was a fellow named Peter Lind Hayes. He was one of these people who used to appear on uh, talk shows and on uh, variety shows uh -huh. because he was such a great storyteller. Yeah. And when I was about 12 years old, my dad was a Shriner. He took me, he said, you want to go to the Shrine thing? Okay, I didn't know what it was. Peter Lind Hayes walked out on the stage, black background, microphones on a stand. That was it. Nothing else. Yeah. Told stories for about 45 to 50 minutes. Wait a minute. Sure. He had PowerPoint, though. Didn't yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. In the 50s. <laughs> wrong answer. But it just, I was so totally captivated by that. And then I had did most of my schooling and most of my adult life has been in the South. And as you know, Joe, as a Southerner, there's just such a great heritage there, a great storytelling. Storytellers. And I just yeah. got fascinated by them, and I guess incorporated a lot of their techniques into what I do. Well, you're one of the best. Thank you. You ran quite with them. Thank you, you so much for being with us. Thank you. Little did we know when we entered the VOE studio for the interview with Lou Heckler that he would soon be presented with the Cabot Award, our association's most prestigious honor. Congratulations, Lou. Well deserved. This month on Once to Watch with Jane Atkinson, we are watching Mike Robbins. And it was interesting because as Mike's going to describe for us what he does, 
it seems like an outrageously soft topic, but what makes him one that you want to watch, Jane? Well, you know, uh, the power of appreciation is uh, one of the angles on what he speaks about. And over over time, I think I think maybe when he began, it wasn't really the easiest topic to have, but he stuck with it. It felt very, very congruent for him. And if there's anything about Mike, it's the fact that he is very, very consistent, but he's also a really authentic person. He's very true to his own, his own self, and it has paid off for him in spades. And that's why I just think he's definitely one we should keep our eye on. I speak about the power of appreciation and authenticity. So, you know, I get hired for keynotes, I get hired for trainings, I get hired to do some consulting, but the core of my message is really about you know, reminding people to focus on what is going well, what's working, and also challenging people just to be them, be themselves and speak their truth. So in whatever context that shows up for a sales team or for a leadership team or for an intact team or for a group of administrative professionals or whoever. So I don't really specifically focus on an industry. I just focus on whoever wants to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> but you would say, though, that picking that lane and having that focus of appreciation has been kind of the centerpiece of your business, correct? I would say. I mean, it took me a few years. You know, I kind of got into the speaking business. Um, I mean, I was only 26. You know, I'm 35 now. And I, you know, former professional athlete, former pro baseball player, blew my arm out when I was in the minor leagues and uh, a couple of years in the dot-com world and then started to speak. Uh, got laid off from my dot com, and you know, and it's funny. My first NSA meeting, you know, what do you speak about? What do you speak about? And I was like, um, life. Um, I don't know. Whatever I want to, right? And it was really just going out and telling my story uh, about what I learned, which was that I hadn't been appreciating myself or what I was doing. I was so focused on making it. And after speaking a lot at you know Rotary clubs and all the places you go start to speak, that was what sort of came out of it. But it still took me another couple of years, I would say and getting some coaching and some feedback and really refining it to realize, oh, I guess that's my message. And then focusing on that definitely has helped people know who I am and what I do. But at the same time, I've been expanding as well. My, you know, the new book that I wrote on authenticity kind of takes it in a little bit of a different direction. So I think picking a lane is important and has been for me, but I also, I don't want to get bored. So, you, you know. know what? And that's something that we talk about mm -hmm. is y you focus for a period of time then you might reinvent. Yes. And, you know, you haven't completely gone in another direction. You've just done a little, yeah. you know, the lane has just gone off a little bit onto a subhighway there. Yeah, and the thing about it is it's interesting because when I first started speaking about appreciation specifically, I got a lot of feedback. People said, that's too soft. Who cares about that? No one will pay for that. And I took that feedback, but I thought, you know, this is kind of what I feel like is important for me to talk about. And it's interesting because in almost 10 years, let's say, since I was first getting that feedback, Positive psychology has become way more popular, the Strengths Finder stuff, all the Gallup organization stuff, what Marcus Buckingham has been doing. And so now people are like, oh, you have a really hot topic. And I'm like, well, I wish I could say it was some brilliant foresight on my, my part. It was really more just listening to what's in my heart and what's in my gut and then trying to match that with where is there a need in the marketplace. And, you know, is that genius? Is that luck? Is that I have no idea, but that's just kind of what I did. You know, your career uh, didn't hit the ground running necessarily. No. Tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the painful times. Well, that you saw. I mean, it was really lean at first, especially. You know, I remember coming to my first, I mean, everyone's got their first NSA meeting story, and mine was uh, 2001, March. It was a conference, one of the regional conferences in San Francisco where I live, um, and I almost didn't go. And someone, I got on the phone with someone who I don't even know, and was, you know, someone I was networking with, says, put on a suit, go to that thing. I was like, I gotta, gotta put it on my credit card, the whole bit. 
But, you know, it was really lean for me in those first few years because I didn't know what I was doing. I was so young, and it took me a while to really figure it out. And then one of the things I thought I had to do to become legitimate was write a book. And then that process took me five years, 25 rejections, two different literary agents, the whole bit. I was sort of unwilling or at least unable to figure out how to self-publish just because I don't know if I was going to be focused enough if I didn't have a deadline and someone saying you have to do it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so there were definitely some spots that were hard. And a lot of times I thought, man, maybe I should just go get a job, you know. Wow. Wow. But your perseverance paid off and you stuck with it. So the book has been a real pivotal part of your reaching the next flashpoint. So talk a little bit about that. Well, so my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, came out in August of 07. And um, that definitely, it wasn't like, like most people with books, and I was able, fortunate enough to have a good publisher in Wiley. You know, there's a lot of pros and cons to self-publishing versus, you know, New York publishing and all that stuff. But I've had a good experience. Uh, They published my second book, Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken, which came out in April of 2009. And you know, The books, it wasn't an overnight thing. Like, all of a sudden, Oprah didn't call the next day. I didn't all of a sudden raise my fee twice as much. But what I noticed was it just gave me credibility. It opened doors that it wouldn't have. I started to ask people, how'd you hear about me? And they'd say, oh, I heard you on the radio. Or Mm -hmm. I remember getting booked for a thing in L.A., and I asked the guy, how'd you, you know, hear about me? He said, well, I was driving to work, and we were going to have a meeting to plan the meeting, you know, and, and you were on the radio. Mm-hmm. And so things like that. And then in 08, definitely I had the biggest year I'd ever had, and it was definitely residuals from the book. So I could see a direct connection. But it was a lot of work, and I put a lot into it, both energy and money and time-wise. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it did pay off in terms of taking my business to the next level. That's great. That's great. You know, one of the things that as far as getting your book out there is, you know, a PR campaign and getting out there and getting on the media. What would you say some of the better money that you might have spent during that process was? I invested both times with both books on doing an online launch campaign, which I personally have sort of a love-hate relationship with because I think those things are overdone. And I've been one of them who's done them twice, so I'm as guilty as anybody. But that worked for me, especially the first time out. And I actually ironically invested more money in it the second time around and had less result than the first time. But, you know, getting some good PR, consulting, some media training definitely was money well spent. Although I will say that I ultimately spent probably way more money than I needed to on PR, especially at first because I was so intimidated by pitching the media. What do they want? They'll laugh me off the phone and all that stuff. So I thought I had to just pay a publicist. And I have found that I've been able to book more media stuff myself directly Mm -hmm. than through any publicist I've ever hired. Not to say that publicists aren't good, but it's such a mysterious business. You pay them quite a bit of money on Mm -hmm. spec, and then there's no guarantee they're going to get anything. So I figure if I'm going to hear no, I'd rather hear it to my face than pay someone a couple thousand dollars a month to hear no for me. Right, right. (laughs) And it's nice that a lot of people have come up with these pay-for-performance ideas because nowadays you can say, you know, all right, I know how much it's going to cost me if you land me a national gig. Exactly. And that's a nice feature that some PR agencies have come out with. The best publicist I've had in the whole process, and I've probably hired four or five different ones at different times, is one that I pay for interviews, I pay for placements, and that to me feels Mm -hmm. good. Like Very I feel, legitimate. I feel good about it. You know, yeah. absolutely. I understand. You know, we've marked you as one to watch because you have been, but, but it's really interesting, Mike. I mean, you've just been basically going along consistently in yeah. your career. What do you think some of the consistent things that you have been doing have helped you land here? Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm honored to be talking to you and to be considered one to watch. You know, of course, my ego likes that. It makes me feel good. But I, <laughs> I think that... Um, 
part of it maybe look i mean again i'm a former athlete i sort of just the kind of going to practice every day and putting it in and doing it i mean i speak a lot all the time and i still speak locally in the san francisco area all the time and even now i don't oftentimes there'll be places i go and i don't speak for a fee i just go to speak because especially when you know the recession hit and things got a little lean i just kept speaking and kept speaking and kept speaking because i love it mm -hmm. that's where i come up with new material my best marketing always my site gets better my video gets better all that stuff's great my best marketing always is me speaking i meet people i connect with people there's relationships and that's you know so it's just speaking 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 for me and it's not so much i mean i'm looking at balance and you know now we have two girls and i don't want to be on the road as much but the thing that I love to do more than anything is speak. So that's really been the thing for me. And coming to NSA and staying in the conversation and staying talking to people who are doing well, um, I'm always looking for who I respect and admire and trying to find ways to both help them, but also in return, what can I learn even just from being around them? Is there anything I can get directly back from them? And I've been really grateful and also lucky that I've had a lot of people help me out along the way. Yeah, and I, I've noticed it in your career that you've really developed a very strong community with the movers and shakers of our, yeah. of our association here, so I think that's wonderful. So what's coming down the pike for you? Well, that's a good question. I have a whole bunch of book ideas at the moment that I'm sort of... Uh, you know, roaming around with and not quite ready to uh, jump back into that pool at the moment. But I'm mm -hmm. sure there's another book that'll be coming out relatively soon. And I think just, you know, looking for ways for me, even though the thing I said before about loving to speak, and I do, I want to keep speaking, but I do want to figure out ways. I've been sort of a little intimidated by doing a lot of products or figuring out ways, you know, I hear multiple streams of income and all this passive income. And I get the concept, but I don't want to do just to do it just to do it, mm -hmm. but I actually want to be thoughtful about it and find some ways that I can do some audio programs and do maybe even like a blog talk radio show. My dad was in radio, so that's always kind of excited me, but ways to expand my message and my work on the internet to other people. And I also am curious about figuring out a way to team and partner because, you know, I'm a former ball player, like mm -hmm. I'm a team guy. And as much as I love this business, I get lonely sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you we love... Eight, you need eight, other, eight other guys. Exactly. So I got. <laughs> I want to figure out a way, but, you know, as long as my, my ego won't get in the way to be too much of a pain in the you-know-what. But, uh, so yeah, that's those are some things coming down the pipe. It's time now for the segment we call Offstage with Renee Godefroy. Renee, usually you profile a specific speaker working on a specific cause, but I understand that this one... Every speaker in NSA can make a difference offstage by participating in an online auction to benefit the NSA Foundation. That's right, George. NSA members can bid for an opportunity to have private training with some of the best speakers in our business, and funds from the winning bids will go to the Foundation. I spoke recently with Foundation Chair Stephen Tweet, who has helped organize the auction. This online auction is a fun way for some of our better-known and more successful NSA speakers to donate their time to help other speakers grow their businesses. We have a fabulous lineup of NSA members who are willing to give up a day to help their colleagues develop new skills, platform techniques, or business strategies to grow their speaking businesses. In exchange, the speakers who are being helped will make a donation to the NSA Foundation. Everybody wins. The members receiving the coaching will get new ideas to grow their business. The speaker offering the coaching gets the satisfaction of helping a fellow speaker in the spirit of Cavett, and the Foundation raises the money 
to provide PSBF grants to those who are in need. And those PSBF grants are the funds given to speakers who are sick for an extended period of time and cannot work, or given to speakers who are facing serious setbacks because of natural disasters. Tell us, who are some of the speakers who will be on the auction block? We'll be auctioning off the time and talent of such well-known NSA members of the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame, Patricia Fripp, Jim Cathcart, Marjorie Brody, and Steve Rizzo. We've also got our friends Willie Jolly, Ron Culbertson, Vic Osteen, Randy Gage, and many more. So if you're looking for an opportunity to learn the speaking business from some of our most successful members, you'll want to participate in the NSA Foundation Celebrity Auction. The offerings are divided into four categories, platform skills, humor, training, and business strategy. When can our members start bidding? The auction kicks off Saturday, February 13, 2010 at the NSA Winter Workshop in Nashville and will run for two weeks. Watch for more details in Speaker Magazine and your email and participate by going online to www.nsafoundation.org. It's time to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts has a new list of little steps you can take to advance product development, social media, writing, and business strategies as we break big tasks into little actionable items in If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. Hi, this is Bill Case. If there's one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to develop a structured coaching program for your clients. As I've covered in one of my previous segments, to run a bona fide structured coaching program, you have to have a body of knowledge and depth of experience that someone will be willing to pay good money for. Please don't think you can just call yourself a coach and try to wing it on every call. Building a sustained coaching program must be based on significant value leading to tangible results. If your coaching program or any other product or service you offer does not produce referrals without asking for them, then your product or service may not be as valuable to people as you think it is. We offer both one-on-one -on -one coaching and small group coaching. Our typical coaching contract lasts four to six months. That's the period of time we've determined is best for our clients. Now, your program can be longer or shorter. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish with your client. Now, here's the part you might find strange. I call my company Referral Coach International, but I really don't care much for one-on-one -on -one coaching. Oh, I do it from time to time, and it's great for me to be in close, continued contact with people implementing my system. Not only do they learn a lot, but so do I. However, I take on very few coaching clients for myself. So how is this a revenue source for me, you might ask? Well, I have several independent coaches who have been trained in my system and who love to coach. If we hand them a coaching client, they get 60% of the coaching fee and we keep 40%. If they find the coaching client, like through a referral from a current client, they get 70% of the fee. If you have various products like books and CDs that relate specifically to your coaching program, you can include these in with the program and price the program accordingly. And one thought about pricing a coaching program. Don't just think about what you want to get paid for your time. While you should get paid well for your time, also think about what your knowledge and help with implementation will be worth to your client. In other words, what will the results of your coaching be worth to them in dollars? That should be factored into your coaching fee as well. 
Ultimately, testing different fee points will help you determine what your market will bear. So please think seriously about adding a coaching program to your offering of ways you can help your clients. In my next segment for VOE, I'm going to talk to you about teleseminars and webinars. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. Our speeches reflect the content we think is important. Don't miss the point. It is a large part of why we get paid. The ability to bring well-thought-out, articulately crafted opinions and conclusions to the table makes a thought leader. Throw in the ability to deliver those messages persuasively wrapped in well-crafted stories with energy and enthusiasm. Well, who wouldn't want to sit in that audience? A written piece is a different animal. The reader gets to decide, and decide they do very quickly, whether or not they're going to keep reading, especially in nonfiction writing. That decision is based on whether or not the information being presented is helpful to the reader. Usually it's based on, is it helpful immediately? That makes relevance even more critical. Take that reader deciding to read or not scenario, call yourself their writer, and take a nap. See the empty page, a flashing cursor, stuff that haunts your nap time nightmares. Lucky speakers never has to be that way for us. We have audiences, and if we let them, they'll ask questions. That's content they think is important. Suggestion. If you're building a writing library, here are two to add. Carolyn Page wrote, page by page, and then chapter by chapter. I found both of them fun to read, dog-eared lots of pages, and learn lots about the writing craft. I also think she really nailed the content from the reader's point of view. I got lots of questions answered, and some more questions I didn't even know I had. You're going to like this exercise because it's going to produce some really useful writing. Got your notebook? Open it to a new page and start writing a list of questions you are frequently asked by participants. Come on, keep going. Unless you're embarking on a totally new topic area, you should be able to create quite a list. If you can't, beware. Either you aren't giving your audience members the opportunity to ask, or you're not listening. Since only writing will make you a better writer, commit to writing the answers to these questions. You might even be able to use the stories you were working on after our last visit for a few of the answers. These can turn out to be FAQs, blog entries, articles, you figure it out. The possibilities are only limited by your imagination, creativity, and willingness to put pen to paper. It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here. And my quick strategy segments for VOE are related to how you can monetize your social media networking efforts to grow your business. This issue, we're going to take a look at a couple things that you can do to leverage your opinions and your expertise to get new prospects, gain valuable feedback, and expand your digital footprint. Now, it's no secret that I've worked closely with many of NSA's top professional speakers, including Randy Gage. Now, if there's someone who's positioned as a critical thinker with the guts to challenge the status quo and use controversy as an advantage and grow his business using social media marketing, it's Randy Gage. Sure, there's others, so you know what? Just spare me. Don't send me any emails. The point I'm making is that Randy has created his success not just because he's a brilliant marketer, but because he understands that social media marketing 
isn't really about marketing. It's about building relationships through multiple forms of media and activities. Now we manage his websites and publish many of his titles and last week he sent out a tweet on Twitter and because he had over 14,000 followers and then they retweeted his post to their followers that had a link back to his blog, the exponential effect inspired over 150,000 people to his blog in just a few minutes, so much so that it took down our web server. Now, it wasn't a bandwidth issue. It was that WordPress couldn't handle all the blog comments at one time. Now, that's not a bad trouble to have, and we've fixed it since then. Now, the point is that because he spent a few hours learning about Twitter and how it worked and then focusing on delivering topical, relevant content and engaging in conversations, he was able to create a viral effect that rivals traditional marketing. The lesson is to stop making social media marketing so difficult. You should be topic experts and specialists, so it should be easy for you to leverage the social networking sites. But you have to invest your time in understanding it because it's really about you and your thoughts and opinions. So don't just hire a third-party service or hire an unqualified staff member to take care of it for you. Sure, you can have someone or a service provider help you get started, edit a video, and even guide you on the proper usage and the idiosyncrasies of each specific site. But at the end of the day, it's about you. So quit whining and just get on with it. And the bigger lesson for today is that you should never, let me repeat, never send a direct sales message to your social media list. Don't tweet your links to your sales letters and don't tweet to squeeze pages. Instead, send people to relevant videos, special reviews, free webinars, or free downloads, meaning that you are delivering something of value, not just pitching a product or service. That's all we have time for today. This has been Ford Sakes from PrimeConcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hello, Mike Rayburn back with you. This segment is called The Sigmoid Curve. I want you to imagine a horizontal timeline on a page with one half circle below the line followed by one half circle above that line, kind of like a sideways S with a line through it. Can you see it? This curve represents the life cycle of exactly every endeavor, career, business, product, organization, or relationship, and let me explain. I'll use a business startup as an example and follow the curve in your mind. You begin at point zero with a good product or service, like your speaking career, and some initial capital, and you launch. The goal is to generate profit before you run out of capital, right? So let's say you do, and at the bottom of the curve turns upward. Now you're making money. Now it's profitable and it's moving upward. Soon it's a cash cow. It's easy and you keep building and you keep climbing the curve. But then, even if you keep doing exactly the same thing, profits will begin to level out. They'll taper off and then they'll decline. This phenomenon is called the sigmoid curve and it was of course discovered by a man named Curve. (laughs) So, why in the world is this important? Well, think about your career and tell me. Where is it on that graph? Have you launched and are trying to be profitable before you go broke? Is it a cash cow? Or have profits begun to level off and begun to drop off? Friends, this is a profoundly important perspective for many reasons, but mainly to know what's next so you can make the next right move. If you're running out of capital, you obviously need to do something to become profitable soon. If it's a cash cow, that's great, but don't get cocky because you need to use your success now to prepare for the fact that it will top off at some point. 
And if you're in that place of decline, you need to make some changes. Now, I hate to leave you hanging, but they only give me a couple minutes here. So next month, I'm going to talk specifically about the one thing you have to do if your career is peaking or in decline, or better yet, to keep it from getting there in the first place. So stay tuned. Thanks. And here's a quick reminder. If you love social media and use Facebook, make sure you sign in for the VOE Voices of Experience fan page. That way you can tell us your thoughts and talk back to us. We'd be happy to hear from you. It's winter time and time to attend the winter conference. This year it's in Nashville, February 12th through 14th. And joining me now is Mark Levin, who is our winter conference chair. And word on the street is you're bringing a little Nashville celebrity status as well as some NSA celebrity status to this event. Mark, tell me about it. I think we have two of the biggest celebrities you can get, both in NSA and in Nashville. Lou Heckler, the current Cavett Award winner, is going to be hosting our bonus pre-conference seminar, doing a program called Making Lemonade from Lemons, turning a difficult start into a great finish. And his special guest is going to be Country Music Hall of Famer Mel Tillis. And if there's anybody that can talk about overcoming a disadvantage to be successful on the platform, it is certainly Mel Tillis. His difficulty was his stutter, but he has managed to use it well and, and have a successful career. He's had a wonderful career, and he's really more of a speaker now than he is a singer. And one of the things he's going to talk about is regardless of what it takes to get up there and whatever your audience is, there's things that you can do to overcome those fears and those handicaps that started before you got up there. Outstanding. Now, in February, many chapters don't have a chapter meeting, so the members can attend the winter conference. So for those folks who are coming uh, as, as their primary learning event for February, what's in store for them? Well, I think what's in store for them is a program that's been geared around what we think speakers go through every day. And that is that feeling that nobody out there really understands what it's like to be a successful speaker in this marketplace. But there is somebody that understands it. That's NSA. And we try to put this program together based around the things that people want. How do I get those clients? Number two, how do I make sure that when I get up in front of those clients, I'm doing the best I can? And number three, how do I run my business most efficiently? And if those aren't the three things speakers want, then we've got the wrong program. But I think it's not only the right program, but the best one we've ever had. And in recent years, we've gone to the longer format, or we're going to stay with that longer format with more intense, longer learning sessions? We're going to go with it because we think it's successful, and we think that's what people want. They want to be able to go in, take things they can use back in their own practice, in their own business, and be able to get as much of that in in the two and a half, three days as they can. So we're going to go with it because we know that it works. Okay. Registration is on the website, and that address is? We have a special website called www.nsawinterconference.org, and you can register right online. If I'm going to be a speaking star. I'll have to fly first class. I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Cause everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm gonna be a speaking star. If I'm gonna be a speaking star. Well, speaking stars, it's time for another edition of The Starfish Story. Recorded live at the NSA convention during our night of a thousand starfish. Well, we've got no place to go but downhill from here. <laughs> the reason I say that is joining us now from the Jersey Shore with a fish-eating grin, I might add. <laughs> and if you know it's good for you, you better laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, Vinny Varelli. Go! Go, Vinny! Go! Oh! Oh! 
Last weekend, they take a drive down to Atlantic City to uh, do some work. <laughs> and on the drive down, I listened to a CD. It's the 50 greatest motivational books of all time. On one CD. <laughs> it went by pretty quick, you know. So it was everything from Napoleon Hill to Winnie the Frickin' Pooh. By the time I got to the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, my head was spinning. Everything in the hotel and the casino was like a motivational metaphor. There were 12 steps leading up to the reception desk. The slot machines were coming up seven habits. I even had an argument with a cocktail waitress. I said, it's the law of attraction. She says, no, it's stalking, leave me alone. So I went for a walk on the beach. <laughs> there in front of me, I see this big sweaty guy throwing something in the water. <laughs> As I got closer, I realized he was throwing starfish into the water and going, hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo, every time he was throwing one. Then I noticed that this Ken Blanchard is on the beach and he's running around as fast as you can, throwing starfish in the water right and left. But then he stopped after one minute. <laughs> there was Mark Sanford. No, Mark, Mark Sanford. Mark Sanborn, who's wearing the same shirt as me. Can you believe that? There was Mark Sandberg. He, at the time, he was wearing a tuxedo. And he was throwing starfish into the water with precision. <laughs> Expertise to the power of eloquence, I'll tell you. <laughs> then there was Jack Canfield. He was on the beach. He wasn't throwing starfish in the water. He had somebody else throwing starfish in the water for him. <laughs> Still taking the credit, you know. <laughs> Dale Irvin was there. Dale Irvin was shouting and screaming at a starfish. I said, Dale, why don't you throw the starfish in the water? He says, because it's bad to the bone. <laughs> all right, then all work. <laughs> there was Ron Culperson on the beach. And he was wearing the same Gillikin hat, you know. I said, Ron, give it up. Gilligan, change your Facebook profile already. <laughs> David Glickman was on the beach. He had his portable keyboard with him. And he was just like the Pied Piper. He walked into the water and the starfish followed him in. <laughs> but it all went to hell when he got his organ wet. <laughs> there on the end of the beach was my Uncle Solly. And there were starfish all around them. And Solly was crying. I said, Uncle Solly, why are you crying? These starfish are going to die a slow and painful death. <laughs> Uncle Solly had just had a manicure and did not want to pick up the spiny creatures. <laughs> I said, Uncle Solly, you're right. These starfish are all going to make die a, a slow and painful death. There is no way you can possibly make a difference. A light went on in his head. He pulled out a gun, goes, Phew! 
Made a difference to that one. <laughs> that one too. Ciao for now. As we continue our biology lesson of dissecting uh, the starfish stories, uh, this month we had Vinnie Varelli, David Clickman's joining me again, Ron Culberson's with me. Your thoughts on, on uh, NSA's favorite uh, guy from Brooklyn? Vinnie Varelli is such a well-defined character that when he writes for an assignment like this, this being, we'll call it an assignment, you know, do the starfish story, as, as you would want to do it funny and creatively. The better defined a character it is, the easier it is to take on a challenge like this. I bet Vinny had an easier time writing this than any one of us because his character, that, 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 that's 80% of the work right there. And his laughs were brilliant because of that. You know, in acting, they, if you ever watch Inside the Actor's Studio, they talk about how they have to become the character. And they don't become the character in a schizophrenic, multiple personality kind of way. They become the character by getting inside the character's head. Stephen King also talks about how he writes this way. He becomes the character and lets the character direct where the story goes. Because if you really know the character well, you know where the character will go. And so this speaks to a greater theme, bigger theme, I think, in writing humor, is that when you have a construct, a parameter in which you can write, it creates many more opportunities for you to come up with humor because you have a foundation that guides you. You become that that construct, you become that parameter, and that leads you then to to many more opportunities. So uh, I, I'm right there. I think that is brilliant, the way he can, he can take that. And ultimately, he was on target. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Joining us once again is Phil Van Hoosier, president of NSA and the man who has been imagining for us all year and leading the way. Phil, let me ask you this. It's the new year. When you imagine what your year is going to be, do you describe yourself as someone who sets resolutions or would you say you're more of a goal setter? In my mind, Jared, I'm much more of a goal setter than I am a resolution maker. I have long-term and short-term goals for my life, for my work, for my health, for my finances, for my family, just about everything. Uh, it sounds like you've thought this out, uh, especially this whole goal-setting thing. What, what type of positive impact can goal-setting have on a person's business? What has it had on your business? Well, I've told many people over the years that, on, that I knew what I wanted to be, and that was, of course, a professional speaker since I was a little boy. By the time I reached 15... I had set a goal to own my own business and travel around the country giving talks and getting paid for that privilege. Now, as undefined and as rough around the edges as that goal might have been at the time, it was still my goal, an identified goal, and I did everything I knew to do at the time to work toward the accomplishment of it. Lo and behold, 15 years later, I look up and I own my own business and I was working as a professional speaker. So you achieved that goal. How did your goals change once you actually had the business up and running? Well, my new goal at that time was to keep it up and running. That's always a good one. You bet. But seriously, when <laughs> I, I realized that that very first important goal, amazingly, all kinds of new opportunities began to present themselves. And 
When those presented themselves, it became time to set new goals, and this time even further reaching goals. For example, at my first NSA convention, I heard about the Certified Speaking Professional designation. I didn't know very much about it, but I immediately set a goal to achieve that destination in the shortest time period possible. At the 1993 convention in Dallas, just five years after joining NSA, I'm proud to say I earned that designation. That's all because I had set the goal originally. By the way, for those in our membership who are looking for a good goal, since it is the new year, maybe there it is for them. Earn your CSP designation just as soon as is humanly possible. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Start today. So, are you ready to tackle 2010? Are you ready for it to be your most profitable and successful year ever? The future is in your hands. It can be anything you imagine. The first thing you need to do is open your mind to the endless possibilities. For Voices of Experience, I'm Jared Pro. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.